Hello and welcome to the So What podcast, in which political economic analyst J.P. Lantman discusses the issues uppermost in the minds of South Africans. You can find a written version of this content on J.P.'s website, jplantman.co.za. I am Ruda Lantman and I am your host. These first few recordings were done at our dining room table, but we will soon be moving into a studio. Hello, and a very warm welcome to another discussion based on JP's latest newsletter. This one is dated the 20th of September 2023. Um, the uh, heading is neither a one-day nor a one-person job. It's your annual update on what's happening with measures to counter corruption in South Africa. But you start in the U.S. with research done on corruption in that country between, what is it, 1865 and 1941. And that was a yes. period infamous for its, for its corruption. What did the researchers find? Yes, indeed. It, it, uh, it was a sort of a dark period in American history and a period in which there was a lot of particularly corporate corruption. Um, <clears throat> and the two re researchers uh, found four things. The first one is it is possible for a system to transition from one which is absolutely corrupt to one where corrupt behavior is seen as aberrational. Uh, so right, we can get out of this. You can get out of it. That is the bottom line. <laughs> Uh, and I think we as South Africans can take some, some comfort from that. So the fact that we now find ourselves in a system which is systemically corrupt doesn't mean we will stay there forever. That was the first finding. The second finding, uh, I think, is equally important for South Africa, and that is that the, the change in the U.S. Uh, was not um, a, a linear one. It was incremental, it was uneven, and it was slow incremental, uneven, and slow. So there was no big bang. There was no upward graph that just went from the left bottom to the top right. Um, and again, I think that is applicable to us here in South Africa. We tend to think, you know, if the NPA loses one case, then that is the end of all action against corruption. And that's simply not, uh, that is simply not correct. The third one is, uh, if you want to have a systemic uh, curbing of corruption, then you must be willing to put resources behind it. The idea that a smaller state gives you less corruption is, is simply nonsense in the view of the researchers. What in, it's the opposite. What you in fact need is for more money, more resources, more power in the hands of, of uh, the law enforcement agencies to curb uh, crime corruption. I don't think we have a particular problem with that in South Africa, except perhaps for budget cuts. You know, we must be careful not to, to go too far with that. And then the fourth and the last uh, finding was that it is not just about uh, having high-profile prosecutions, uh, arrests and prosecutions. It is also about systemic change in the rest of the civil service. It's about ongoing institutional reform that gives you more effective institutions. And I think this last one is particularly important for South Africa, and I focus this note on, on, on that point. It struck me so much that I thought, well, it is worth mentioning it and then worth writing about that, which is what we do here. What are the institutions that you see that are coming through, which we didn't know before? 
Two in particular stand out. Uh, both of them were initiated in February 2019 by uh, the president. The first one is the SIU Tribunal, the Special Investigative Unit Tribunal. Now, uh, you may remember the uh, SIU started its life uh, during Mr. Mandela's term as president. Legislation was passed towards the end of the 1990s, and it's basically a unit government agency that specializes in reclaiming money that was lost through corruption or maladministration, and they use civil proceedings. It's not a prosecutorial agency. It is a civil litigation agency that reclaims money lost through corruption or maladministration. Is it part of the NPA? It's not part of the NPA. It's part of the Department of Justice, but it stands next to the NPA. Now, as I say, this dates from the days of Mr. Mandela. The problem that developed over time was because it's civil litigation, the unit always had to go to the High Court. Nothing wrong with that, except that the queues in the High Court are very, very long. And in 2019, the president announced that he's creating a tribunal which will hear SIU cases. Now, what is a tribunal? It is simply judges of the High Court who sit as a tribunal uh, specializing only on SIU cases. So no other cases serve before them, and they only deal with SIU cases. So the role is not so overpopulated? The role is not overpopulated. The only people that can bring cases to that role, or put, put cases on the role rather, is the SIU, the Special Investigative Unit. Now, it is, it is noticeable that since this change was made in 2019, by way of uh, government gazette and presidential proclamation, the activities of the SIU uh, have picked up quite considerably. Uh, so we quote the, the numbers in, in, in the book, uh, in the note rather. In 2022, the SIU recovered funds and assets to the value of nearly 6 billion rand. And they set aside contracts to the value of 5.5 billion rand. So if they go through Transnet, for example, or through ESCOM or any other place in the public sector, and they find that there are contracts which were inappropriately awarded, they can apply to the tribunal to have it set aside. And in fact, this, uh, this has happened. So it has got nothing to do with orange overalls. People are not being prosecuted, but it has to do with getting back the money, the ill-gotten gains of, of the corrupt. And it certainly is having a great impact. So that's the first institution, was a tribunal that was created to assist the SIU. The second um, reform, civil service reform or institutional reform that took place was that also in uh, 2019, the president created an investigative directorate. Now, this is a unit inside the NPA, and they specialize just on state capture and corruption cases. Uh, Hermione Cronier was the first director, you may remember. Uh, unfortunately, she resigned after about two and a half years and left. And Andrea Johnson is now the, uh, the uh, head of that uh, unit. Now, what is important about the ID, the ID or the investigative directorate is that it is a prosecutor-led agency. So when they investigate a criminal case, unlike the SIU, which do civil litigation, the investigative directorate does prosecution. So it's a criminal process. They aim to be to put people in jail. They they aim to put people in jail or orange overalls, and the way that they do it is to have prosecutor-led investigative teams. The experience is that a prosecutor-led institution is just more effective and efficient than one where the prosecutors are not involved from the beginning. 
We had that in the Scorpions. Absolutely. Can the ID, are they stepping into those shoes or not quite? Y yes, they are. Uh, conceptually, they are. Uh, but remember, their mandate is more limited. They are only mandated to look at state capture and corruption, whilst the old Scorpions could, could investigate uh, any case. But yes, it is in principle exactly the same thing. So in that sense, the Scorpions are coming back. Now, what is very important is that legislation is now before Parliament. It was introduced in September to make the ID a permanent unit. When the President created it in 2019, he did so by way of a presidential proclamation. Now, that implies you can also abolish the unit with a presidential proclamation. In, and you will recall that the Scorpions indeed were abolished, not by proclamation, but by an act of Parliament. Now, to give more permanence to the uh, ID legislation is now before Parliament, to make them permanent, uh, to give them the uh, prosecutorial powers and investigative capabilities, and to appoint permanent staff. At the moment, they must rely on staff seconded from the Department of Justice or the South African Police Service or the Intelligence Service or from the Revenue Service to come and do work in, in the investigative directorate. Mm -hmm. This but should also increase their independence. It will certainly increase their independence and it will give them more oomph. Uh, they are, and they are now busy recruiting people on the basis of this, of this permanence. Now, I must just point out that uh, in Parliament there was uh, a lot of criticism of the legislation, not because anybody is against it, or at least not the people who criticised, but they wanted more. They wanted the ID to be made a Chapter 9 institution. My approach to this is that one mustn't make the perfect enemy of the good. And to delay the whole process and go through a constitutional amendment, and in the meantime you leave the ID at the mercy of a presidential proclamation, is, as far as I'm concerned, not good, uh, not good politics. Because to introduce them into Chapter 9 of the Constitution... Will require a constitutional amendment process, which is much, much more onerous than just an act before mm -hmm. Parliament. In any case, I think the mood has shifted a lot since the time that the Scorpions were abolished. Remember that abolition was tested in the Constitutional Court. The Court found it was okay. Well, so it, it found that it was legal. It found it was legal. Oh, quite, correct. <laughs> quite correct. It found it was legal and fitted in with the Constitution. Yes. One doesn't know whether the Constitutional Court today would again make such a, uh, make such a ruling. Now, uh, right now, at the moment, the ID is working on 97 state captured investigations. They have enrolled 35 cases uh, in, in court involving over 200 people or 200 accused. Amongst the accused, you find uh, senior politicians, civil servants, former CEOs, and also companies, uh, corporate institutions, corporate heavyweights, like Tongard Hewlett's, ABB, McKinsey, and others. And the ID has also secured restraining orders valued at over 7 billion rand. So while the cases are going on, the money gets frozen so that it cannot be spent. I must point out that one of the biggest victories of the NPA is that in December last year, they extracted a punitive fine from the international engineering company ABB uh, for fraud committed at ESCOM. This was in, a, in addition to 1.6 billion rand, which ABB paid back in 2020 already for fraud committed at ESCOM. So clearly, you know, it's an indication of how corruption is not just a one-way street. You need two parties to, to participate uh, to participate in corruption. And once again, it is not uniquely South African. And it's absolutely not uniquely <laughs> South African. Because this is a well-known... International uh, good Swedish repute. companies. Yeah. 
Absolutely. Then the third uh, institution that has developed uh, is the Anti-Corruption Task Team, or ACTT for short, and it's exactly what the title suggests. It is the bringing together uh, of several branches of the state, uh, the intelligence services, the police services, prosecutorial services, and so on, to oversee joint action against suspects in particular cases. And to date, uh, as a result of the existence of the ACTT, 554 people were arrested and 142 of them have been convicted up to the end of 2022. It's a unique thing in the sense that it's uh, these arrests and prosecutions were the function of coordination. So this is not, I think South Africans are a bit cynical about more task teams, more coordinating bodies, etc., etc. So you think this one actually works? Yeah, look, it's very simple. I mean, crime is evolving all the time and crime is getting better financed. It's getting better organized. Crime is becoming more professional. So you can't have that development on the one side and the other side, you don't take steps to make the anti-crime agencies not also more professional and and better coordinated and better integrated. You know, the one must balance the other. So, no, I'm not cynical about it at all. I think it helps to to balance the forces between the, the between the people who commit crime and the, and the crime fighters. And SARS is also participating in this fight. Absolutely. SARS has, uh, has scored a number of important victories. They're using lifestyle audits and they're now busy with an unexplained wealth initiative, which is most welcome. There was a, a bit of a rumpus a few months ago when people who want to take the money out of the country had to declare where the money came from. And some people misinterpreted this, perhaps willfully, as uh, an extra form of exchange control. It's got, of course, nothing to do with that. It's got to do with where does the money come from that you want to take out and that you pay your due taxes on it. It's as simple as that. So SARS is also uh, upping the game, which I think is, is very good. And once again, that is not unique to South Africa. Friends of ours who wanted to get money out of the UK had to go back in their own history for about 15 or 20 years and declare where it came from. Absolutely. They had to ex explain to the British Bank uh, the origin of the funds that they had in, in the UK before they could repatriate it. I suspect the grey listing also has something to do with this, but I, I don't have concrete uh, information on that. The private sector is getting involved in many areas of our public life. Can they play a role in, in this? Yes, the, there are three areas in which the private sector, on an organized basis, is uh, helping government. The first one is energy. The second one is logistics, ports and railway lines, or railway operations rather. And the third one is crime and corruption. And it's the crime and corruption that is important here. Now, a couple of things. Um, the private sector created a thing called the uh, Resource Mobilization Fund. Uh, and there's some hundred million rand, I think, in there. Um, and from that fund, they give help with energy, with logistics, but also to the NPA on crime and corruption. So the partnership is not between the NPA and individual companies. I think that's very important. It is with this collective institution. 
So there's no one-on-one partnership, no individual companies. And secondly... So no one can buy the NPA? No one can buy the NPA. And secondly, the assistance that the NPA can get is only in kind. It's not money. So, for example, qualified legal people can be seconded to the NPA to help the prosecutions. And I think that's what will happen. And we also know that the private sector is helping to resuscitate the forensics laboratory of the police, which should have a big, uh, big impact. So yes, the private sector is showing up and having a partnership with government, which, uh, which should uh, give some dividends. All of these are new institutions, new approaches. What's happening with what you call the old workhorses of the NPA in the meantime? Yeah, I think it's important not to forget what, what, what is there. And there are basically three of them that we can uh, refer to. The first one is the asset forfeiture unit which investigate cases of organized crime and can seize assets, money, assets, uh, the proceeds of crime after they obtain the court order. So they, they have to investigate the case, build it up and convince the judge to give them that order. Over the past five years, the Asset Forfeiture Unit has obtained 1,630 freezing orders to the value of 12 billion rand. It's, a, it's quite a big amount of money. It's quite a big amount of money. And again, it indicates that it's not just about orange overalls. The asset forfeiture unit has got nothing to do with uh, prosecutions, but they have to do with going after ill-gotten gains and getting it back. The money gets paid into CARA, the Criminal Asset Recovery Account, and I will talk about that a little bit more just now. But the second unit, apart from the asset forfeiture unit, is the Specialized Commercial Crimes Unit in the NPA. And they pursue, amongst other things, corruption involving the state and state-owned companies. What is interesting here is that they've got an 87% conviction rate of all government officials that they've charged. I mean, that is, that is a very good number. The other interesting thing about specialized commercial crimes is that they obtained 52 more convictions, uh, 52% more convictions of people from the private sector than from people in the public sector. So clearly, it's not just people in the, it's not just public servants who put their fingers in a cookie jar. I mean, that is. And on the other thing. hand, it's not just public service servants who are prosecuted. No, absolutely. So, but the private absolutely. sector does also come into yeah. it. Yeah. yeah, more people in the private sector are prosecuted mm. and, and, and found guilty. And then, of course, the biggest unit in the NPA is the prosecuting services. And they deal with 850,000 cases per year. Now, you know, how much is 850,000 cases per year? Well, it works out if you work on 250 working days, it comes to about 5,550 cases per day or 700 per hour. Now, the country is big and you've got many towns and regional cities and so on. But still, think about that for one central service to handle 700 cases per hour. Uh, it is it is quite a big operation. Uh, it's quite a big operation. And therefore, once again, the point that we can learn from the Americans, you have to keep on putting resources into that. You have to keep on building those institutions to make them more efficient, help them to cope with bigger and bigger volumes. There's just no ways around that. The prosecuting service actually has a very good track record that yes. I don't think people know about. Yes, in the high court, uh, the conviction rate is 90%. In the regional courts, it's 82%. And in district courts, it's 95%. And th- these are impressive numbers, you know. 
Uh, okay, some people will probably argue they only take cases which they know they can win. But what does they do? Take cases which they know they will lose. <laughs> Don't people watch Law and Order? <laughs> Indeed. I think the, the, the bottom line of these numbers is once you are charged by the prosecuting service, it, it's better to <laughs> admit and, 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 and get it over and done with than to, than to run the, the gauntlet with these kinds of conviction numbers. And then CARA, you said you'd talk more about that? Yeah, CARA is the Criminal Asset Recovery Fund. Now, monies that are uh, expropriated by the Asset Forfeiture Unit and by the SIU go into CARA, into this Criminal Asset Recovery Account, and then the money is reallocated to fight priority crimes, and it is there for the benefit of the victims of crime. Now, many billions of rands have already gone into it. Uh, currently, it's about three and a half billion rand, 3.4 billion rand. Um, and that is earmarked for, uh, for building forensic capacity and to fight illegal mining operations. So the money comes back and you can use it again. But a bit of a, we've now said that they, they are actually doing better than one thinks. Um, but then your next heading is they cannot do it alone. Yes, and I think this is a very important point. That is why the heading of the piece uh, as a whole is it is not just a one-person job. There are two institutions which are completely independent of the NPA, but which uh, really impacts on the NPA's performance. The one is the South African Police Service, because they do, remember, they do the investigations. They have to take the statements. They have to collect the evidence. And the other one is the court system. Now, the South African Police Service uh, is, there's a ton of empirical evidence available from, for example, the Institute for Security Studies on how the South African Police Services has become a dysfunctional organization as their budget has increased and Parliament has given them the money. Uh, as their budget has increased by more than 80%, their performance have actually gone down. So there's clearly a need for huge people and institutional reform in the police. I think it's a matter of common knowledge that the crime intelligence service is not uh, giving us the kind of information that one would like. So there's work to be done in the police. The president has taken the trouble to, to start both people and institutional reform in the NPA. It seems to be the next area of work has to be the police service. Likewise, there is the, the court system. Now, the court system is completely independent of the civil service. They have their own budget, uh, their own personnel, their own head office even, and they fall under the control of the chief justice. But, you know, the chief justice becomes the chief justice because he's a good uh, legal person, not because he's necessarily a good manager. And there are numerous cases where our court system is just not functioning properly. And, and more work needs to be done to reform that as well. So these two institutions, the police service on the one hand and the court system on the other hand, are, as I say, standing next to the NPA, independent of, of the NPA, but it influences what's going on in the NPA. A bit of a, a side issue, but I, I think something that people really worry about, um, consequences after the... July 2021 KZN riots. It's now two and a quarter years later. Yeah, I thought it's, uh, it'll be interesting to just follow up on that. And, and that's what I do here. And I just do a very uh, superficial reference to both the January 6th uh, attack on Capitol Hill in the United States in 2021, 
we had the quasi-natal riots in July 2021. And then, of course, in January 2023, there was the uh, s similar attack on the, on, on the capital and parliamentary building of Brazil after uh, Bolsonaro lost the election and Lula da Silva won. So you've got actually three of these cases that you can look at. And what I found interesting was that the first prosecutions in South Africa for KZN riots took place 14 months after the riots. In the United States, it took exactly 14 months before the first people were convicted in court. You know, now the Americans have got a, a formidable police and crime-fighting machine. If it took them 14 months to get a prosecution, then maybe one can look at the KZN thing in a slightly different light. What have we actually done in KZN? Well, we've, we've seen 63 people charged up to date and until the, the date of the note, and 28 preservation orders that have been obtained by the Asset Forfeiture Unit. Uh, for example, one of them was a guy that was found guilty of commit of looting and creating damage, but he also lost his bucky, which was used to uh, to transport some stolen goods. So, you know, that's the role of the asset forfeiture unit. Uh, it's interesting to compare what uh, we are doing and what uh, the United States uh, have done to in Brazil. To Brazil, in Brazil, the judiciary created what they called fast track courts to deal precisely with the with the January 23 riots. And they, they had their first case, I think, nine months after the, uh, after the riots took place. The riots took place in January, and the first conviction was in September. So maybe it's something that we can learn from then in the, in the spirit of institutional reform, is to establish fast-track courts for, criminal, for, for serious crimes like illegal mining, attacks on infrastructure, that sort of thing, that you get it through the court system much quicker and you can lock people up and claim their assets. So, with all this data, so what? The first thing that, that strikes me is that we are not unique, number one. And number two, that, as you said in the beginning, that the pattern internationally is that progress is incremental, uneven, slow. Yeah, absolutely. I think those two points stand. I mean, as we're sitting here talking, uh, it is quite clear that some army generals, military elite in China is being... Uh, prosecuted, locked up, whatever, we don't quite know. Even in Ukraine? Uh, in Ukraine, there was a problem. So, you know, corruption is not a uniquely South African feature. And like those societies, we're fighting to, to move a system to a, to a better place. And I think the other thing that you've already alluded to is the fact that the progress is incremental, uneven and slow. Forget about the quick fixes and quick solutions. There's no such a thing. You know, uh, some member of the Commentariat said that the NPA or the investigative director should be involved in some 900 corruption cases. Well, that is simply, uh, that doesn't have any contact with reality. You know, the, the British have got an office similar to the investigative directorate known as the SFO, the Serious Fraud Office. It's older than the ID, much older. It's older than the NPA, in fact. And it's a quite a well-resourced company or institution, rather. They've got 500 pe people working there. They limit themselves to about 100 cases at any, in any given time. So the idea is specialized, focused, prioritized then you get the best results. And I think that's what one must bear in mind when we talk about let's just have uh, prosecutions. But another so what that you lift out is that it's not just the institutions, it's also 
the people, the population, that we must start seeing things in a different way. Absolutely. It's all about values. And what we learned from human development is that values shift. Values are not permanent. And societies where they are permanent run into trouble. Now, if you think about shifting values in South Africa, there was a time when the most wonderful people uh, put themselves into contortions and twists to defend the uh, uh, inappropriate spending at Nakandla. Now, uh, it is a condition of the ANC that to run for office, you can't have any serious charges against you. You know, that is, we've come a long way in a few years. And that process will carry on. That's how you move a system from one state to another. And the work that we're doing around institutions, around fighting corruption, around uh, claiming money, reclaiming money, and so on, it's all part of that, of that process. And then there's, as you say, ongoing civil service reform, but it has to go wider than the NPA. Yeah, I think we've discussed that at length and don't have to, but it's clearly a priority. It's, it's clearly a priority that the president must attend to. What about accountability in the private sector? I think that is uh, an equally important point. We cannot shift the system away from uh, tolerance of corruption while you have ostensible corruption going on in the private sector. Um, We hear about health professionals who fleece the system. We know about uh, advocates and lawyers who simply charge outrageous fees to the taxpayer. Um, that kind of that kind of nonsense must must be must also be taken up. It's about adherence to the rule of law, and that can't be done by the NPA or even the government. It's the regulatory bodies in the private sector that must do that. The regulatory bodies for the legal profession, for the medical profession, for the auditing profession, and so on and so forth. And it's corporates. It's corporates that must take action against people who who participate or who assist in these processes. Um, SARS. It's a very good point on that. They have prevented two or three deals that went ahead with the concurrence of, of uh, big commercial banks. Uh, and when SARS uh, brought uh, tax claims and so on, the deals fell apart. Now, that's for me is an indication of where the role should be played by the, by the, uh, by the private sector. And then you end on quite a bleak note that there are new battlefronts in South African crime. Yeah, look, uh, I think it's quite clear if you watch the news that organized crime gangs, uh, illegal mining and extortion are are crimes that are on the rise and that are uh, causing havoc in certain communities. And obviously the crime fighting authorities must respond to that. So I think it's a fairly safe bait to say that once the ID legislation is passed by parliament and provided uh, parliament provides money in the budget, that we will get more IDs, more investigative directorates that will specialize on illegal mining, extortion, kidnapping, uh, and and organized crime gangs. And that's the way that it should be. That's the way it should be. And at least we are pursuing that. So it's not just it's not just a one-way street. I think that's the overall conclusion that I take away from, from doing this research and writing this note. There's a lot of pushback going on, and all of us must, must climb in behind the pushback and help it. If you say it's not a one-way street, what do you mean? Well, I, what I mean is that, you know, it's not everything is not in favor of the criminals. It's not that uh, criminals are running wild and, and getting away with things. The Guptas uh, got away with an enormous amount of stealing, and I'm sure a lot of that is still going on at a smaller scale. But the fact is the Guptas are no longer here. The fact is they're on the run. 
the fact is a lot of proceeds of, of corrupt activities have been confiscated either by the SIU or the asset forfeiture unit or frozen by the ID. So the money is being recovered uh, and it's recycled into further crime fighting. So the battle is on and it's by no means lost. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the So What podcast. If you enjoy this content, please don't forget to leave a review and a rating and please consider subscribing so you don't miss any future episodes. Also, tell your friends. Remember, you can find a written version of all JP's content at jplandman.co.za.